0: Our family serves in Spain, and we've been there for the last almost seven years. And this morning, I'd like to invite you in to what it might look like. And so you're going to have to imagine with me this morning that you are going to be at a coffee meeting. We're going to step into the coffee shop. We're going to get our café con leche, and we're going to sit down. We're going to talk with friends. And we're considering an issue, a problem, the thought that we're considering is how are we supposed to keep going in this world even though it seems like nothing really matters? What are we supposed to do when everything is the same, or no matter what we do, it always fails, or the bad guys get ahead and the good guys lose, that at the end there's always a funeral home? What are we supposed to do? And as you sit at the table, you have different companions that you're going to be with. And these individuals, they're not made up. They're people that we've had Bible studies with and talked through Ecclesiastes or other books. But we're going to give them different names, fitting for Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. So the first one that we have, sitting to your right, is Mr. Only Science. He's our philosophical materialist. His claim is that none of this ultimately matters. When I die, I die. There's nothing after death. Next to him, you have Mr. Roller Coaster. He is your disenchanted relativist. His driving motivation is satisfaction, feeling, getting that high. It's all about what you feel. And it doesn't matter how you get there because it's all relative anyways. Mr. Rollercoaster. Then you have Mr. Don't Cry. He's a budding follower of Stoicism. As this unaffected Stoic. He's sitting there considering and stating, well, it really doesn't matter. What is, is. Get over it. Do what you're supposed to. Be unaffected. Be like the rock that the wave crashes around. Don't let it move you. Don't get too high. Don't get too low. And you're sitting there. And as you're sitting there, you have another individual walk in. He gets his drink, and he sits down next to you. And as you're going through, and he overhears your conversation, and you're battling out, what are we supposed to do in this world? How do we live when it feels like nothing matters? And this newcomer opens his mouth, and he says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Can you imagine the conversation that would take place between you and the three friends and this newcomer? It'd be like Paul in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I believe in the resurrection of the dead because here you just tossed in the bombshells of many different things. God? What God? Enjoyment? Why does it matter? And someone else? It matters. It's everything. Eating and drinking? It doesn't matter if you have anything or a lot. Just just be stupid solid. What are you talking about? That's what we live for. That's all we have because tomorrow we die. You have this clash going. Imagine if you were sitting at that table. Solomon enters in Ecclesiastes 2, and he lays this out for us as though he were going to participate in a Bible study in 21st century Europe. And this is what he says, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is from the hand of God. How are you supposed to keep going when all this world seems to be on a repetitive cycle and nothing makes any difference? No matter what you do, you end up dying in the end. Here's Solomon's answer. He says, enjoy the good gifts from God's hand. That's the point. Enjoy God's good gifts. Meaning and satisfaction do not come from within you or your power. It doesn't come from what you earn. It doesn't come from what you construct. It doesn't come from the legacy or the monument you erect. It comes from God. Now, this portion, what Solomon shares with us, comes from a larger whole, the book of Ecclesiastes. And it is going through Ecclesiastes that Solomon begins to explain, I tried that, it failed. I tried this, it failed. I did that, doesn't work. Don't even bother over here because, believe me, that didn't work either. And so in this argument, in this extended argument, the, the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, we, we read of him here as the preacher or teacher. You might have in your translation the speaker or philosopher. Was written, most likely, around 900 B.C. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, given divine wisdom from God himself, took, went off in the deep end. We know the story of Solomon. We know what he did, what he tried. And he alone really gives us the the perfect example of what it looks like to hit every single dead end. Most of us could only hope to hit one or two in our lives, but he hit them all. And he uses these different arguments throughout the book of Ecclesiastes in a circular argumentation, not like a circular argument where What you believe is dependent on this proof, which is dependent on what you believe, and so you just get stuck in that vortex, but rather he keeps circling around the ideas in Ecclesiastes to help us see it from different angles. This is what really matters with your life. And the book of Ecclesiastes is like medicine for the postmodern soul. It's like chemotherapy for the postmodern soul. It's intense. It's hard. It crushes you. You don't get up every morning and drink it for fun. This is what brings you to f- right in front of your face with the realities of human existence. And in Ecclesiastes, his goal is that we don't make the same mistakes, but instead, ironically, find true enjoyment. So he starts to answer the question of your friends at this table. Mr. Roller Coaster. yeah. Your feelings matter. They're important. They can be good. Mr. Stoic, Mr. Don't Cry. Yeah, we need to recognize that ultimately things don't change. Mr. Only Science, yeah. If we look at this world, this is what it looks like. But he goes and he uses some catchphrases throughout the book. He uses phrases like vanity. We heard it multiple times in that first chapter. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity is this vapor, this this smoke that rises and disappears. Vanity is grasping for the bubbles of this earth and trying to keep them for later. If I just get enough, then when I get to retirement age, I'll have my bubbles with me. It's vanity. It doesn't make sense, but yet we try it and we think I learned from the last generation, it will work this time. And then he uses the phrase under the sun evaluating everything that we see and taste and touch, whatever our senses can capture, he talks about this is what life looks like when you only see atoms. That's it. But from these arguments, Solomon leads us to accept the fact the good idea that God has for us that we can and should enjoy God's good gifts from his hand. But yet, remember, we're sitting with these friends. How does Solomon get there? It's one thing to come in and say, hey, just like your food. And it's another to say, here's why. And here's how you can. And so in this passage— What we're going to look at this morning, we're going to answer that question, how? How can I accept these good gifts from God's hand? How can I get to the place where I can legitimately enjoy these relatively small daily gifts, even though it seems all around me nothing really matters? How can I? And your friends and you are talking about this, and here is what we see. It begins by recognizing where God tells me I am recognize where God tells me I am in verses 24 through 26 of Ecclesiastes 2. This is what we find. I am created for enjoyment. I am incapable of finding enjoyment in myself and I am accountable for my enjoyment. I'm created for enjoyment. If we look at this passage, what is the, what's the best thing for a person to do? He should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is also, I saw us from the hand of God. But it's not only here. We could go to chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Verse 22 of chapter 3 There's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, which is his lot. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, what is good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Verses, chapter 8, verses 15, there's nothing better under the sun for a man than to eat and drink and be joyful. Chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, chapter 11, 8 through 10, he keeps coming back to it. Why, does, why is Solomon so stuck on the relatively, relatively mundane tasks of going to work every day, coming home, eating food, drinking, and being with our family? Because those are good gifts from God. And we just celebrated Thanksgiving. And we, and we shared, perhaps, what are you thankful for? What's the most meaningful thing to you? Probably not a lot of people listed off what in the back of our mind we really think is meaningful about money and financial security and retirement. Instead, it was, it was based on simple things like my family, my job, what we're eating right now. So Solomon brings us back and through this, and he explains, this is good. You were created for that enjoyment. But the problem is, you're incapable of finding it in yourself. You're not an artesian well. You can't just spring up that enjoyment. You need something from outside. It needs to come to you. You don't just get it from staring within you. And so we see we're incapable of finding this enjoyment by ourselves. Verse 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. One author stated this way, A can of cherries and a can opener are two distinct gifts. You need both of them. You can have all the work and you can have the food and you can have the drink and you can have the family. But if you don't have the ability from God to enjoy those, you're still left with gravel in your mouth. And so you can amass wealth and you can have all of the, the things that this world says, this is what you need, and you can find out, it's like rocks in my mouth. We're incapable of finding it in ourselves. He says there is nothing in man himself that brings it. It is God who gives that joy. God is the one who gives us this ability to enjoy these small, repetitive, good gifts. You were created for enjoyment, and then God says, come to me, and I will give it to you. But we think, I'm going to find it on my own. I'm going to root around and look in the trash and find where I can get it instead of going to my father to give me the good gifts. We all do it. And Solomon saw nothing different 3,000 years ago. And so in this created for enjoyment, God's blessing on it, we go to Genesis 1, and we see this is God's good gift. And then we hear Solomon repeat it over and over and over again. God says this, this is good, this is good, this is good and he gives it to us, we also recognize we're accountable for that enjoyment. Verse 26. That as he gives to the sinner, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. And this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. If I seek enjoyment on my own terms, God does not give it to me. Because a good father doesn't let his child get something good for the wrong reasons to teach them that you can keep finding that good thing apart from the father, apart from the mother. That's what a good parent does. No, I will give it to you. It's a gift. Come to me and it's yours. I want you to have it. But you go and steal something, it will not satisfy. It will hurt you. And so this is what Solomon is showing us. But then we can go to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes and we can see the same thing. What is the chief end of man? To fear God and keep his commandments. There will be a reckoning in chapter 12. So now we go back to our setting in this this cafe. The, The windows are around us. We're watching all these people go past the windows as though they had something important to do that day. But we're sitting there and saying, you know what? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And here you have... We have Solomon, the teacher, telling us, this is what matters. And our companions are in an uproar. Mr. Only Science, Mr. Rollercoaster, Mr. Don't Cry, all have profound problems with this concept of God. So we're going to take a step back. We read chapter 1 in the service. And that leads us to the second way. How do we find enjoyment or enjoy the good gifts from God's hand when everything seems meaningless first by recognizing where God tells me I am I'm created for enjoyment he gives us enjoyment but number 2 by recognizing where this universe tells me that I am where does the universe everything i can see taste touch smell sense where does it tell me i am, tells where does it tell me that i am and ecclesiastes 1 provides one of the responses for our friends. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanities. Grasping after this smoke, this breath, this bubble. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Solomon says, what you do doesn't really matter. All your work all your house improvements, all of your effort, and, and all of your investments, it doesn't really make a difference. That's what the universe says to us. Because you know what? In 10 years, or 20, or 100, or 200, it's going to break down. The universe says you don't matter. The world keeps going with or without you. Verses 4 through 10. If you don't show up at work tomorrow... The world still keeps spinning. And the universe says, You will be forgotten. Verse 11 There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Your tombstone will fall, or the names will fade. That's a lovely thought for us, isn't it? If that's all we had, if the universe told us the deepest things about ourselves, if science could answer all of our questions, this is what science tells us. You don't matter. And so now you have Mr. Only Science, and yep, that's what I think. That's right. doesn't matter. So make up your own meaning, your own goal in life, and embrace it. Do what is right for you. Create meaning, accept it, own it, that's yours. Except it can change. You can miss it. You have Mr. Don't Cry that says, yeah, that's sort of. The universe is. It's just going to keep going. There is some overarching meaning, but you can't change it. The universe has given you your lot. Accept it and don't be moved by it. Be like that water. But neither of these options really satisfy any of us. We all know that doesn't cut it. Solomon lays out in chapter one this is what life looks like under the sun, taking God out of the picture. This is what you have. You don't matter. But we do. We realize that. We we long for it. We want that belonging. We desire to be accepted. We desire relationship because that's how we're created. It's not an animal instinct brought through evolution so that we are able to survive as a species. This is God implanted from a triune God from all eternity past, outside of time, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in one relationship, overflowing into his creation so that we can be loving and loved. But Solomon says, if you look at it without God, you're sunk. You don't matter. And so he goes on to the next chapter. In chapter two, we say, where does God tell me I am? Where does the universe tell me that I am? And now, where does my experience tell me that I am? In verses twelve through verse, chapter one, verse twelve, verse through two twenty-three, that whole segment. He starts to kick off where our experiences are. And he starts to list up, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. We read some of those this morning. He says, wisdom won't fix this. No matter how much you think, no matter how much you study, no matter how much you try and get to the heart of it, it doesn't make sense. Apart from God, this is all just meaningless. There are chemical reactions in your brain. And if you modify it through heat or other chemicals, you're a different person. Your memories are nothing but sparks going back and forth. What makes you meaningful is really meaningless, apart from God. Wisdom won't fix this. Chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. I saw, verse 18 says, For in much wisdom is much vexation. For he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And then he says, Self-indulgent pleasure won't heal this. Verses 1 through 3 of 2. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I tried wine, I tried wisdom, I tried folly, I tried all of these things. Self-indulgent pleasure won't heal this. And then in verses 4 through 11 and then 18 through 21, he says, godless consumerism can't solve this. He says, I built up for myself over here. I bought these, I did that, I invested, I gathered, I harvested, and you know what? I got nothing Black Friday came and went and I still feel empty. And now you have Mr. Roller Coaster on your side saying, no, well, you just need to try something different. Try something more. But we all know it doesn't really work. We have Minnesota Teen Challenge. We have addiction centers here. And over here, we have therapies that tell us you can keep going and max it out and you still end up frustrated. This is where Solomon bases his understanding of the passage we left. So what should we do? Eat, drink, enjoy your work. And we could add into that later on in Ephesians, enjoy your family. These are God's good gifts but yet we still feel as though there's a jump here. Solomon's sitting there. He tried it all. His, he has bags under his eyes. I tried it. didn't work. He's worn down. In the end of, chapter, of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he starts to talk through what it's like for the body to begin to break down and the struggles that you face with aging. And we're still left, but... Okay. The world... Science, everything apart from God can't answer it. No matter what I gather and get, can't answer it. I'm just supposed to enjoy God, but I'm still left hanging. I'm still left there. What am I supposed to do to make that jump, to just accept these good gifts? How do I embrace it? And we forgot an individual in all of this. We have Mr. Roller Coaster and Mr. Only Science and and we have uh, Mr. Don't Cry but we also have you. You're at the table because you try and try and try and it seems like things just don't change or your spouse doesn't change or your child doesn't change. You invest, invest, invest and it all gets blown away and you you try to do what's right. You try to follow the path of wisdom. You try to just get your ducks in a row, and you still fail. You put your head in your hands at the end of the day and say, what is the point? Why keep trying if it doesn't do any good? How am I supposed to go from hurt and pain and cancer, and miscarriages? How am I supposed to go from lost job, and famine, and war, and and deceit, and backstabbing? How am I supposed to go from the things that burden me down, lost relationships, lost parents? How am I supposed to go when there's still places like the ICU and say, God has good gifts? What am I supposed to do with the reality of pain in this world? Where do I go? I just say, oh, I have something to eat and something to drink. I have work. I have a family. But what if all of that is bitter in the end? Because Solomon is giving us this point of view. He's dealing with these arguments and he's saying, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. This is what we have to do. But we're still left waiting. We need the bigger picture. We not only need where God says we are and where the universe says we are and where our consumerism or our enjoyment says we are, but we need to recognize where God tells us he is. This is what changes it from being a purely philosophical argument to what's a reality to you and I. Where is God? Because we looked at where we were And then we looked at where the universe says we were. And then we looked at where our experience tells us we are. But now we're going to ask, where does God say he is? And this yearning, this battling, this fighting that we read in Ecclesiastes, this grasping after the wind, and this groaning of a teacher saying, I tried it and it doesn't work, is what we see in the ministry, the life of Jesus Christ. He entered this world and he looked around and he saw the failures and the sickness and the death. He saw the famine and he saw the the tears. He saw the hypocrisy. And what does he do? He groans. Someone greater than Solomon came to this earth and he looked around and he said, why? Why? Why don't you see? And so in Mark 8, he's groaning and the the terminology used is just this, ugh, why can't you see this as he deals with unbelief? In Mark 7, he sees the pain and suffering all around him and he's deeply moved in his spirit and he groans because he sees how the world is crushed, it's broken. God tells us he came Jesus walked in this broken world. It's not an intellectual exercise that we can deal with over coffee. This is what we deal with when we get in our cars and when we lay in our bed at night. This is what God says he has done. He has entered this world. The eternal son became flesh. He was born. He grew he dealt with the struggles of humanity. He embraced them, as Philippians 2 tells us. He added to his divinity his humanity, and he becomes these two inseparable natures so that he could perfectly experience all the groaning and the difficulties that we face every single day, but yet he could experience them at the depth of God. That's where God is. He's here. And his eternal son entered this world. And that is why when he gives his life as a sacrifice for us, it's not just to make God the Father happy. He's giving us his goodness because he's making things right again. His perfect life and his perfect death and the resurrection shows that God is putting the pieces back together. We desperately need him. Apart from him, we're still grasping for the bubbles. In Christ, we are pleasing to God. There's no condemnation. In Christ, we are not slaves, but we have the spirit of adoption where we can say, Father, Abba. In Christ, God is for us. Who can be against us? In Christ, who shall separate us from that love? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And Romans 8 is this the second half of Ecclesiastes? Because in Romans 8, Paul uses this terminology that we see in Ecclesiastes this drumbeat of futility. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, Paul tells us For the creation was subject to futility, vanity. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Where does God tell us he is? He is here. He came. The eternal son gave his life on the cross for us. And where does God say he is? He is coming. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul utilizes this this drumbeat of Ecclesiastes, the futility of all things, and he says, look around you. This is where the creation is, but it's not where the creation will be. God is not only here and he came and he died but Jesus Christ is coming again to make things right, to bring things together, to make all things new. That's how we move and we say this is good to eat, this is good to drink, this is good to work even though it's all going to be gone tomorrow. It is good. It is a good gift from God because he Came and he's coming again. He will restore this world. And so it's not a logical leap. The universe doesn't care, so just make believe that there's a God so you feel better about yourself. This is worked out, and we eliminate the other options, and we see our only hope is in Jesus Christ. We need him. And when I recognize who I am in Jesus Christ, I come to God the Father, Abba, Father. And I say, God, I want these good gifts and give me the enjoyment to go with them. Because it is to those in whom God is pleased that he gives the ability to to enjoy what he has given. And we are pleasing to him in Christ. This means that we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ are able to dance on the knife edge of levity and lament. We know that this world will be remade and we can't ultimately fix anything. But at the same time, we can cry out to our Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us and has walked this, uh, as the Son has walked this earth. We can say, God, send Christ quickly please, we're hurting here. As we sit at the hospital bed, as we sit in the therapist's office, as we sit at our cubicle, we cry out to our good Father and say, please, I need you. And he has promised that he will give us the enjoyment in his good gifts. When we try and try and try to do something good and it just won't work, we can realize that this is from the hand of God. My value, my identity is not wrapped up in my 401k plan because it will evaporate. But God doesn't care. He sees me through his son, Jesus Christ. And he loves me. My life and identity is not wrapped up in my year-end reports or my tax reports. My life and identity is not wrapped up in my community service or church service. My life and identity is wrapped up in something that is incapable of displeasing God the Father, Jesus. I can enjoy my food and my drink and my work because my value doesn't depend on it. For evangelism, this means that we can agree with Mr. Only Science and say, you're right. We will not ultimately change a thing. The world will forget we are here. And we can look them in the eye and say, but our creator won't. With Mr. Rollercoaster, you can say, you're right, your experiences are important and your pleasure is important. You were created to enjoy good things. But a Ferrari doesn't find enjoyment in sugar poured in the gas tank. And you won't find enjoyment in what you're pouring into your gas tank. The Creator has something to say about what it runs best on. For Mr. Don't Cry, you're right. It's not our job to change the universe, but God has invited us to talk to Him about it because He can. This is what God is working out. God is bringing us to the end of our trash digging, looking for what we think are good gifts, but not from the creator's hand. And what we end up is disappointed trash. But when we come to the Father and we receive the good gifts and we accept them not because of our goodness, but because of what he has done, we can say, I am free. I am okay to." To love him because I am am made new in Christ. He answers and he gives our deepest longings so that we find them only in him. There's a reason why we put our names on the Christmas presents to our children so they don't forget the giver. Because the gift is going to be broken, but the giver's right here. So eat and drink. Work and play. Invite your family and neighbors and friends, your coworkers, into your life so they can see you enjoying God's simple but good gifts. Rest assured that in Christ we are loved. And don't be deceived, my brothers, for every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And what are we about to do? We're going to eat, we're going to drink, and we're going to remember that God has come. The Son has come and lived perfectly, died obediently, and was raised victoriously from the death, from dead, And we're going to sing and we're going to pray and remember that Christ is coming again. Enjoy this. It is our hope. It is our longing. And in him, we have everything necessary to enjoy the good gifts of our Father. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we walk away into this week, into our jobs, into caring for our parents or caring for our children, into caring for our lawns or shoveling our sidewalks, that we will accept your good gifts, and we will realize the incredible love that you have bestowed upon us through your Son Jesus Christ and his presence in us through your Spirit. We pray that you would be honored and glorified as our Father